welcome to the Palmwood Podcast, part of the teaching ministry of Palmwood Church in Oviedo, Florida, where we love God extravagantly, love people with humility, and mentor others to do the same. Here's Pastor John with an introduction for this week's message. Thanks, David. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Palmwood Podcast. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? In John 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that God desires worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? That's the topic of this week's message in our series, True Worship. Jesus is far less concerned with where we worship than he is with how we worship. In fact, today we'll learn that if we're not worshiping God in spirit, we're really not worshiping Him at all. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Michael. This story um, comes to us from Samaria. The Jews and the Samaritans <clears throat> had a bit of a history. Jesus here is <clears throat> on a ministry trip, if you will, with his disciples, and he stops at Jacob's well. And uh, as he stops at Jacob's well, he meets a Samaritan woman. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. Jews did not like Samaritans. The feeling was mutual, by the way. Samaritans did not like Jews either. Um, a rabbi typically would not have a conversation with a woman certainly would not have a conversation with a Samaritan. And she had the double whammy. She was a Samaritan woman. But if we were to go back several verses in this story, you would see that Jesus says something interesting as they're getting ready to take this trip. He says, I have to go through Samaria. No Jew 
in that day would have voluntarily gone through Samaria. In fact, depending on where they were going, they might take an extra day's journey to go around Samaria just to avoid the Samaritans. But here Jesus, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, says, oh, no, 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 I have to go through Samaria. And from that, we gather there, there was a plan here that this encounter that we read about in John chapter 4 was something that God intended. Many people don't realize it, but in this conversation with this Samaritan woman, Jesus changes everything. In his dialogue with this woman at Jacob's well, he totally sets what people understood about worship, the worship of God, on its ear. And friends, I would submit to you that he is still trying to instruct us in this way in 2019 America. Let's pray. Father, As we gather here to worship you in spirit and in truth, and specifically today, Lord, we learn what it means to worship you in spirit. Um, Father, I am very aware from my study and interaction with this passage this week that there's a lot of things we think this passage says that it does not say. And, Father, there are things that we believe our worship that are merely habits, traditions, and tools that enhance our worship, but they themselves are not worship. I know, Lord, that even as a non-believer for the first third of my life, I was in worship services every single Sunday, raised in a home that went to church religiously, but I did not worship. I know, Father, that Worshiping you is something deeper, something more than an order that we follow on a Sunday. I know, Jesus, that this idea of, of worship that the Father desires is something more than musical selections, a pastoral preaching schedule, a building where we gather together with a steeple on it, or in our case, a YMCA. That the worship God desires is simpler, purer, And possibly something that some might 
even mistakenly believe is not worship. And so, Father, I pray today as we, uh, we come to this idea of worshiping you in spirit. That you would take away all the trappings. Take away all the things that would cause us to be distracted from the pure idea that Jesus was trying to communicate to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And we would understand and we would walk in it. You be our teacher. Be our guide. In Jesus' name. Amen. I need to correct something. I didn't catch it until just now as Michael was reading the scripture. Maybe some of you saw it. In fact, could we bump back to the scripture page again? Look at verses 23 and 24, because that's where we're going to focus on those pa- that part of the passage today. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in... This is, this is important. It says the Spirit. And notice that the Spirit is capitalized there. Now in the... 1984 version of the NIV, which is the Bible I grew up on and and learned to preach from and that I still use to this day, it does not say that. Spirit is not capitalized and there is no the in front of it. And as I saw that, I kind of was shocked because this is the the 2011 version that's up on the screen. The NIV gets revised every so many years to keep it current with language. So I, I jumped here just a moment ago to the actual Greek text. It is not capitalized, and there is no the. There is an assumption made by those who translated the 2011 NIV, and possibly some of your translations as well, that spirit there is necessarily talking about the Holy Spirit. Today I want to tell you it is not. And the Greek text undergirds that. We're going to talk about that today. This is something different. And so... I really believe that a better translation is Jesus saying here, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Know the small s. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And I'll explain why I believe that. But first, we have to have a little history lesson. I think one of the most significant things that Jesus here is trying to teach the woman at the well is that the where of worship is not what we think. You see, the Jewish-Samaritan debate on where to worship had been going on for generations. Now, this is where I say we have to have a little history lesson because way back before Jesus, way, way back before Jesus, in the time of King David, we had what is called in seminary, it's called the Davidic monarchy. How's that for a great big title, okay? It's, it's David's kingdom, the Davidic monarchy. And David ruled over 12 unified tribes of people. 
when David passed away and his son Solomon became the king, Solomon reigned very well, by the way, over 12 unified tribes of Israel. After Solomon, however, the, the unification broke. And under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom was divided. And this is where you had, if, if you've maybe seen this in the scriptures and wondered what this was all about, you have what's called the northern kingdom, called Israel, and the southern kingdom, called Judah. At the time of that division, or I should say from the time of that division, the northern kingdom, called Israel, never truly followed God again. Their kings were wayward kings, and they led the people of Israel to worship all kinds of a mixture of gods, and, and it just was not pure Jewish religion any longer. And God eventually, after warning them through the prophets over and over again, brought in the Assyrians from the north, and they were obliterated. The intermarrying of the Assyrians and the Jews from the northern tribe of Israel became a people called the Samaritans. So that's where the Samaritans come from. They have Jewish background, but they are not a pure Jewish bloodline, and that's what becomes a problem for the Jews later. So there's, that's the northern tribe. Now, the southern tribe of Judah was not without its problems. They had good kings and they had bad kings. And, and I think I've, I've said this at one point in a, in a sermon. One of the reasons we called our son Josiah is because Josiah was one of the good kings of Israel who was a very young king, became king at eight years of age, but followed the Lord and was a very good king for Israel. And so we, we just saw that as you know, something that our son, we wanted our son to, to embody, and so we called him Josiah. But there were bad kings in Judah as well that led the people astray, and there were prophets that prophesied to Judah. And Judah was kind of on again and off again, and on again and off again, and eventually God raised up the Babylonians to come and take Judah, the southern kingdom, into exile. Okay? This is where we get the story of Daniel, by the way. Daniel is, that whole story takes place in the time of exile away from Jerusalem. This is also where we get the story of Nehemiah and Ezra. Nehemiah is, is serving this other king when God lays it on his heart to bring the people back to Jerusalem. And you can read the, the story of Nehemiah and, and how he and Ezra bring the people back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem. The thing to understand is about the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, there were always faithful people among the people of Judah. Even though there was a lot of on-again, off-again kind of stuff, there was always what is called a remnant of people who were absolutely faithful to God. And it's out of that, that faithful family line that we end up getting Jesus. And I, I could, we could have a whole another story, a whole other history lesson on that. But you have to have this bigger view to understand why this story is such a big deal. There are two tribes, the northern tribe of Israel, the southern tribe of Judah. 
Now, here's what you need to understand. The northern kingdom was comprised of ten of the tribes. How many tribes were there? Twelve. So over 80% of the population of God went into apostasy when the kingdom divided. Over 80%. And those who were faithful and those who remained part of the remnant, they always looked on them with disdain. And that's where the seed of this hatred between the Jews of Jerusalem and the Samaritans who were unfaithful Jews intermarrying with Assyrians where that whole thing came from. That's why a good rabbi would never talk to a Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan and what does the priest do when he sees the wounded person. He goes over on the other side, right? You have the story of the good Jewish people walking on the other side. Who comes and rescues the man who's been beaten up? A Samaritan. Listen, Jesus did that on purpose, and I am sure it just about incited a riot. That the hero of the story of a Jewish rabbi giving a Jewish parable would be a Samaritan. That was unheard of. And yet Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria. Because I believe this encounter was not just for the salvation of that woman. It certainly included that. It was not just for the salvation of that whole town that came out. It certainly included that. I think, this is me now, but I think this story actually sets the stage for Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, to for the first time in broken human history since the fall, back in the garden, to realign worship the way it's supposed to be. I think it's a big deal. And so, after the separation of Judah and Israel back in the ninth century, King Omri of the northern kingdom decided the people still had to worship God. Now, it was all a mixture of stuff, and so it wasn't pure worship, and God actually didn't like it. He said so. You can look at the prophets. But he bought a hill in Samaria from Shemer. You can see the story in 1 Kings chapter 16. And there King Omri built the city of Samaria, which became the kingdom then, uh, became the capital of the northern kingdom. And that's where they built their temple to worship God. And so the Samaritans uh, worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped on Mount Zion, basically Mount Zion, on, on the, the, the holy hill of David in Jerusalem, the top of Jerusalem. The Jews looked down as, at Samaritans as apostate half-breeds. It was the worst kind of racism because it was against their own people. And when you realize that the Samaritans represented the northern kingdom, which was 80% of the Jewish population when the division took place, you realize how bad this division was. But Jesus changes the dialogue in verse 23. In one visit with a Samaritan woman, Jesus brings a God-ordained clarity to the world. The woman says to him, well, I see that you're a prophet because you're telling me all about myself. The Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but my people say we're supposed to worship here in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus responds by saying, I'm telling you the truth, lady. 
There's coming a time, in fact, because I'm sitting here in front of you, it's arrived, because the time was with his arrival, Jesus. When real worshipers, true worshipers, they're not going to worship on Mount Gerizim. They're not going to worship in David's city of Jerusalem. Because that's not what God intended. God intended worship to be something different. God is not looking for worshipers in a particular location. God is looking for people who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we're going to see as we walk this out over this week and next week, he's looking for people who worship him 24-7 everywhere they go. Now, I just want to reflect this back because we got the same problem today. How many Christians in the United States of America only worship in a building with a cross on top of it on Sunday mornings? How many people, when they hear the word church, they think of a building? They don't think of a people. It's the same problem. Worship is tied to a location in 2019 America just as much as it was tied to a location between the Samaritans and the Jews back in Jesus' day in the first century. It's no different. And Jesus is still saying, Margaret! (laughs) That's not what I designed. I don't want worshipers that worship just in a building. I want worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. This is the kind of worshipers, says Jesus. This isn't Pastor John speaking now. This is Jesus. God wants the kind of worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, therefore he requires worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. And from that moment on, worship, from the moment Jesus connected with that that woman at at the well, worship was no longer tied to a physical location. Worship becomes the condition of the heart, which is what it was always intended to be. Worship becomes living a life where it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I could be taking out the trash, and while taking out the trash, my heart is moving in reverence, adoration, and glory to God. Remember what we talked about, how we defined worship. I could be homeschooling my little ones around the table, and while I'm teaching math of all things, my heart is moving in reverence, adoration, and glory to God. I could be selling insurance on the phone with somebody whose mouth is like a sailor. And while I'm talking to them, my heart is moving in reverence, adoration, and glory to God. I could be working at a grocery store, carrying bags out to somebody's car. And as I'm doing that, my heart is moving in reverence, adoration, and glory to God. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not tied to a place. And I'm going to show you why it's not tied to a place here before we're done today. But Jesus is changing the dialogue. And here's why. I wrestled with this for two days. And today I, I, I told Stephen and Gail I messed with the slides this morning. Because a picture is worth a thousand words. Pop to the next picture. I told you last week about the Shekinah glory, the presence of God 
as it dwelt over the footstool. Remember it's talking about the footstool, the Ark of the Covenant? So the Ark of the Covenant is a piece of holy furniture that sits in the inner room called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It is the throne, the physical earthly throne of God. His presence, the pillar of fire, dwells atop the Ark of the Covenant. So right below that in that picture, you see the tent of the tabernacle. The back side of the tent of the tabernacle has an inner room. The Ark of the Covenant is in the inner room, and that glory dwells right down on top of the, the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So every single tent opens, and you see how they're divided out by tribes. Every single tent opens toward the tabernacle, so when you go to bed at night, the last thing you see before you close the flaps the first thing you see when you open the flaps in the morning is what? The presence of God. The Shekinah glory of God. And in this, they kind of attach themselves to the tent of the tabernacle. Later, they, they attach themselves to the physical built building, the temple, because that's where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled on the mercy seat. But here's what happened when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. Next picture. The Shekinah glory of God, the scripture tells us, came down while they were gathered together and divided. The scripture says it divided and alighted upon each one of those believers in Jesus. And so you see, there is a personal pillar of fire, if you will, that rests on each one of those believers in Jesus Christ. We have moved, and by the way, after that happened, Never again has there ever been, never again has there been a pillar of fire over any edifice anywhere. The fire of God, the Shekinah of God, the Spirit of God, His presence dwells within us individually and therefore it goes with us everywhere we go. This is why Paul says in... Um, the 1 Corinthians 16, I, I have to remember, I don't remember the exact reference to it, but he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are the one that now carries the presence of God with you everywhere you go. You don't worship in a YMCA. You worship everywhere you go. You carry the pillar of fire with you Everywhere you go, if you are in Christ and you are redeemed and you are one with him, the presence of the Holy Spirit indwells you and you carry him everywhere you go. You are the edifice. You are the building. You are the tabernacle. You're the tent. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I referred us earlier to the language of Psalm 139. The reason there is nowhere you can go and God's presence isn't there is not just simply because God permeates all creation. He certainly does. But it's because you carry him with you wherever you go. He is with you. If you are redeemed, he is with you everywhere you go. Michael and I talked a little bit about this this week and, and he gave, us a, gave me a, an illustration that I love, it's very simple. He talked about how we are made up body, soul, and spirit. And our spirit is what is 
redeemed when we come alive in Christ. Acts chapter 2, Romans chapter 5 talks about how we are made alive in Christ. So let me just talk about myself for a moment. August, I'm sorry, September 11th, 1986. I had been in church every Sunday of my life unless I was sick. That's, I was just raised in a church where I went every single Sunday, yet I did not know Jesus. I knew of him. I actually taught Sunday school without being a born-again believer. Not proud of it, but that's just the way it was. At the age of 22, I finally met Jesus. I was confronted with my sin. I met Jesus. And everything in my life changed. It's the night that I surrendered to salvation. It's also the night that I was called into the pastoral ministry, and I said yes to the pastoral ministry. Was my body alive before I met Jesus? Yes. Was my mind alive? You know, yeah, my emotions, in fact, they were a mess, which is part of the reason I met Jesus. What was not alive in me was my spirit. I was dead, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, in my transgressions and my sins. I still walked, I still talked, all that was true, but from God's standpoint, I was dead. When I surrendered to Jesus, Scripture says he made me alive. What did he make alive? He made my spirit alive. I was complete again. I was made the way God designed me, body, soul, and spirit. My spirit came alive. And it is the spirit of a man, woman, or child that comes to Christ that resonates with the Holy Spirit. See? So before I was born again, I was like a train without an engine heading down a hill. My life was already very much a train wreck at that point in time. It was out of control. The mind and emotions and the body, everything was still functioning, but it was not in any way that would honor or glorify God. When I came alive in Christ, all of a sudden now the engine was put at the front of that train again. The engine being the spirit that's made alive in Christ. And now... My life is driven by the Spirit. My Spirit, in unified resonance with the Holy Spirit, that guides my mind, my emotions, my behavior. And when my mind, emotions, and behavior don't cooperate, convicts me so that we get realigned again and does the same for you. Let's talk about the nature of worship. This is why I made a, a point of saying at the beginning of this message, the word spirit here in the Greek language when you look at it does not have a the in front of it. And there's a reason for that. It is not talking about the Holy Spirit. Now let me just say, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved. The Holy Spirit is absolutely moving and governing us and speaking to our spirit, but the reference here is to our spirit as it reacts and responds to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In spirit here is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but our own participation in the spiritual realm. And a great example, I love this, is actually Jesus' mom. 
Turn to Luke chapter 1. Mary has just found out that she is with child by the Holy Spirit. And look at what she says. She sings this song of praise and worship to God, but look at what she actually says in the song. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. Now, what, what, let's go back to last week. What are we talking about here? This is worship. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit, small s, rejoices in God my Savior. She is, she is moved to a place, and you know I'm not going to get into all of the theology of whether she was born again then or after Christ went to the cross. That's, that's People on a higher theological pay grade than me can argue that point. All I'm saying is she was cognizant that something happened to her spirit. And it responded immediately how? In worship as it should. As it should. Her soul glorifies God. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. It's her spirit that has now come alive in worship, glorifying God. There is the necessary presence of the Holy Spirit in, in all, on all of us. We carry him with us. But there's also the human spirit that is made alive at salvation that now resonates with God's Holy Spirit. The engine is now leading the train. So the Holy Spirit helps us, but the emphasis here is our spirit. Now I want to show you this language is used about other aspects of the Christian life for believers as well. It's not just worship. So we are told in Galatians 5.16 that we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. In other words, live in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means to live in such a way that we act when the Holy Spirit prompts our spirit to do something. How many of you have had a holy nudge? That's what we're talking about. Your spirit is alive. You're getting the nudge from the Holy Spirit. Now, whether you say yes or no is another story. You know, we're all growing in that. But we get the nudge. It is to, to walk in the Spirit is to live in such a way that we act when the Holy Spirit gives us that nudge. Galatians 5, verse 16. To love in the Spirit. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 8. To love in the Spirit is to embrace and bless people as the Holy Spirit prompts our own spirit to love them. To pray in the Spirit is to pray in such a way that we pray and we petition as the Holy Spirit prompts our own spirit to pray. So 2.23 this morning, I woke up wide awake and I was praying. I'm not going to tell you what the prayer was about, because it concerns an individual, but I was praying. I, had, I was praying in my sleep, and God woke me up, and it was 4.30 <laughs> before we were done. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the anxiety thing, which has kept me awake in the past. This was God saying, no, 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 I've got an assignment for you. It was the Holy Spirit nudging my spirit and saying, okay, you know what? You're not awake enough. Wake up. Let's pray. And I just laid there in the bed, and interceded. To worship in the Spirit, therefore, is to worship in such a way, reverence, adoration, glorifying God, that we revere God, we adore God, we glorify God as the Holy Spirit prompts our own spirit in worship. 
John 4, verses 23 and 24. Some have completely misunderstood the immaterial part of man. They've minimized it. They've kind of shelved it. You know, there's, there's whole movements that kind of look at the Holy Spirit as the silent partner. And, and, you know, Jesus gets a lot of press and God the Father gets a lot of press. And then there's that Holy Spirit that we don't talk about. And what has happened is, I think that's really impacted the church's worship. Because it minimizes the one who is leading us now. I mean, think about the book of Revelation. Every time the church is mentioned in the book of Revelation, who's right there with the church every single time? The Spirit. It's the Spirit and the bride that say, come. The Holy Spirit is here with us now as we walk out this, this life. And so they mistakenly think that the, the immaterial part of man really isn't all that important. Wrong! says Jesus. It is of the utmost importance because Jesus tells us in John 4.23 that it is those who worship in the immaterial part, in the spirit, that are the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. And so I would simply say, friends, if we don't learn to worship in the spirit, we're not worshiping at all. We're not worshiping at all. You can be going through the motions you can, you can have incredible music and a, and a great sermon like you get every single Sunday. <laughs> it doesn't mean a thing. It's not what God defines as worship. So this week, my challenge to you is practice it. Slow down and pay attention to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. Practice worshiping in the Spirit this week. Let the Holy Spirit lead your spirit deep into God's presence. As you're doing your daily devotions and you're reading, look at what you've read and stop and say, okay, now how, how does this move me toward reverence? How does this move me toward adoring my God and loving my God? How does this move me toward magnifying His name and, and glorifying Him? Simply begin by asking God to show you what this looks like. And then pay attention to what he lays on your heart. If you're a born-again believer and you carry the Shekinah of God with you, he will speak to you. He absolutely will. He will show you. He will teach you. He will lead you. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is this week for everyone who's walking this journey out with us to become true worshipers. Father, help us to be just that, true worshipers, who this week with the lesson, who worship you in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for the Palmwood Podcast. If you'd like more information about Palmwood Church and its ministry, see our website, at palmwoodchurch.com. Have a blessed day.